Hello and welcome to Starbites, the astronomy podcast for people interested in the cosmos. My name is Douglas. I'm Brian. I'm Jessica. And I'm Yasmin. Welcome to the second episode of our three-part relativity special. Last time we talked about everything that you need to know that happened before Albert Einstein entered the picture. We talked about the emergence of a relativistic thought in science. We talked about motion, Newtonian, classical motion. And we also talked about the beginnings of the understanding of how light works and this weird thing that light apparently has this speed that is just the same speed, doesn't matter what it's relative to. Um, on this episode, we are going to be focusing on Einstein's life and his discovery of the special theory of relativity, which will finally explain why the speed of light just never changes no matter what happens. Um, so I think a nice way to structure this is just to very briefly talk about um, Einstein's initial life, like what drove this man to figuring out what he did. And then we can focus more on the science stuff. Right. And I think it's so important to talk about Einstein's life because obviously he is the biggest name in science in the 21st century. I would say everyone knows the name Albert Einstein. And there's even like urban legends about him, like failing math classes and stuff like that. Like the, the man is nearly a mythical legend to some people just in terms of what he did. Like you can know his name and not even know why he's important. Uh, so I think that's that's mainly why we do want to talk about his life a little bit, because he was such an incredible figure in, in the world of science. And uh, it's just kind of fun to know who this guy was and, like Doug said, how he came to these conclusions. So um, one of the main uh, drivers of Einstein's curiosity was his dad. Um, his dad, I believe, was a mechanical worker. And... There's this legend that when Einstein was a kid, his dad um, gave him uh, a needle and a magnet, like a compass and a magnet. And he showed Einstein that if you pick the magnet and move it around the compass, the compass needle gets all screwed up, uh, moving around with the magnet. And he was like, figure out why these happen. And Einstein was like, what? And it's really cool. So um, also, um, like Brian said, there's this myth that Einstein was when he was growing up was just terrible in math classes and physics classes, but he wasn't. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but he taught himself calculus when he was like 15. Yeah, yeah, he was that kind of dude. Yeah, um, he was he was he was just you know smart. He was a smart guy. It is true though that he had a bit of a problem with authority, yeah. especially as a young yeah. man. He hated school, and so he didn't like school. I think he understood the physics and stuff well, but I think the myth stems from the fact that he was not a fan of like classical education. Yeah. Um, there's this story that uh, uh, Einstein was in a class, a physics class, and the professor was going to teach them something, and I think they ended up choose, having to choose between electromagnetism or thermal, and the professor chose thermal, and the story goes that Einstein was so mad because he wanted to learn about electromagnetism. And so he just went home and read all of Maxwell's work on his own and taught himself. Which is ridiculous if you think about it. Because Maxwell is like a very pioneering, high-level scientist who we talked about, about him a little bit last episode. 
that he came up with this new idea of the union of electricity and magnetism, like it is very high level stuff. And as a teenager, Einstein was reading his original papers, just yeah. crazy, yeah. which are not designed for, you know, an amateur like, yeah. scientist. Those are papers designed for Maxwell's contemporaries who have, you know, comparable, like high <laughs> levels of knowledge. Yeah, this boy was crazy. Just interject a quote that I remember from Einstein. Uh, he once said, "The only thing interfering with my learning is my education." Yeah. So, from the words of the man himself, he clearly was not a fan of the school system. Thought that he could just learn everything himself, which he kind of did. Yeah. Um, also, when he was a teenager, um, there was this family friend, um, a Polish uh, medical student called uh, Max Talmud. I'm probably pronouncing his right name wrong. <laughs> But he used to like have dinners at his family's house and apparently this guy became a sort of tutor of Einstein. Like he wasn't actually hired to be his tutor, but he just taught him stuff. And the myth goes that this guy is the first guy to spark the curiosity that Einstein had with light. This is the guy that, that came up to Einstein and was like, light moves at this speed and it's weird. And this, this just grappled Einstein's mind and he was like why does this happen and I don't get it and it's been the question that drove him throughout all of his teenage years and all of his adult life and it's what drove him to just discover this incredible theory that we're going to talk about today so just a little bit more background before we jump into the science stuff um Einstein being the rebel that he was <laughs> was not very friendly towards his teachers it was known that he used to fight with his teachers a lot he wouldn't do the papers on time. He was not. He had a reputation for fighting against his, against his teachers. Um, so because of that, he had a lot of trouble getting letters of recommendation to um, major universities and jobs. So, and also while he had stellar grades in physics and mathematics, his grades on other subjects were not the best. So he had he had some trouble getting a job and getting to settle down, but. Um, I believe the the famous story, he was a worker at a patent's office. He was not a patent lawyer. He was just the dude that stamped the thing, right? Isn't that yeah, he was he just did? a clerk. He didn't do any actual like actual work with the patents except for taking them and doing like administration work. And I think there's also a story, and I don't know which of these stories are true. I mean, there's obviously a lot of legend surrounding this guy. But there's a story that while he was working um, he would write on the back of the papers and just, he developed special relativity on the back of the papers in his patent office, which is very cool. Um, and I think they found, um, we're going to fact check this, but I think they found recently, not recently, but like a while ago, like a, a, a napkin or a toilet paper or something like that with calculations by Einstein about special relativity. So this man was at it 24-7. <laughs> like, we, it's no stretch calling this man obsessed because he was completely obsessed with what he wanted to find out. So, and then the big year happened. 1905 is the year that um, some people call, like, one of the best years in physics history. It's the year that Einstein published, like, one of four of his most, like, famous papers um, the first of which earned him the Nobel Prize, which was about the photoelectric effect. We're not going to really go too deep into that one because it's not in our topic. But um, if you want to like research into that, it's a really cool idea. And we might also talk about it later. 
end, it kind of, the photoelectric effect was important because it revealed a lot about the nature of light. Yeah, which, true. as we mentioned, you know, in the last episode, was a real mystery and was a very important part of how Einstein came to eventually understand relativity. But the two papers that we want to focus on are the last two that he published, um, which is his paper on special relativity and his paper on the mass-energy equivalence, which is the most famous equation that we all know Einstein by, which is E equals mc squared. Um, does anybody want to start talking about the basic, like, underlying assumptions that had to be made for special relativity to conceive? Um, so, as we mentioned, light moves the same in all, or it moves the same speed in all reference frames, right? So normally, when we think of reference frames, uh, if you're running, like, if someone throws a ball towards you and you're running towards it, the ball appears to be moving faster. If you're running away from it, it seems to be moving slower. Uh, and, you know, obviously people would have thought the same about light. Uh, but the strange thing about light is that no matter what your reference frame, if you are running towards it, if you're running away from it, it's always going to be moving at what appears to be the speed of light. Three times 10 to the 8 meters per second. Can I just say that that is freaking insane? Like, this is the thing that always blew my mind when I, when I think about special relativity. If I am moving at like 99.9% of the speed of light, and I look at light, and I measure the speed of light, the speed of light will be the speed of light. That's just crazy to me. Like, if I'm moving just barely behind it, light is still moving at the same speed relative to me as if I was standing still. As in, even though you're trying to run next to the speed of light at 99.9% the speed of light, you still see that that photon moving past you. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy. To you, yeah, it's I mean, moving still yeah. at the speed of light. Three times yeah, three. You it's could like, never catch up to a photon. You can never catch up to light because it's always moving at the same speed no matter how fast you are moving. Relative to you. Relative to you. Yeah, which is a, a weird thought because you'd sit there and, and think people in different reference frames, let's say I'm standing still and Doug's running super fast by, and there's this photon that's that's moving next to Doug also, I'm going to see it moving at 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. And then Doug is also going to see it traveling that fast also. He's not going to see it just going like a meter per second faster than him. It's just the weirdest concept. So out of that, Einstein ended up coming up with three major conclusions. Uh, and we'll explain how he got there, but just so we can establish where we're going with this, um, because it does get really weird and counterintuitive. Uh, the first being that an object that is moving very fast to someone who is standing still, they will see the time, like if, if the object's moving fast, is wearing a watch with it. The person that's standing still will see the, the, watch, the watch's time be ticking slower than their own clock. Um, so time slows down in a moving reference frame, basically. Yeah, and it's important to recognize that it's not some trick of light that Einstein discovered where you'll see a watch running slowly. The root of the theory is that time moves slower for someone moving at so-called relativistic speed, which is a speed fast enough that the effects of relativity are apparent. Because like we mentioned, you know, in, in the previous episode, I think Jessica was talking about how 
day to day, we don't ever notice any of this stuff because even the fastest speeds that we have on Earth, like an airplane or whatnot, it's not fast enough to compare to relativistic velocities, right? And just for reference, a relativistic velocity starts at around 10% the speed of light. Yeah. Um, so Which is yeah. yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot, 10%, but speed of light is huge. That's, that's 10% still three is times. a lot. It's faster than anything we do here on Earth. Is that yeah. 30 million yeah. meters per second? So something has to be moving 30 million meters per second or more for us to see these effects. So very, very fast motion. <laughs> can, I just, can I just say that this idea that time is not a constant and that time can change based on how fast you're going is just so weird. Because up until Einstein, time was viewed as just like a construct. It's just a thing that's useful to, to measure things against. And like you know? time moves forward and it moves constantly and nobody can... Yeah mess with that. You know? yeah, time is just a rate of change of something. We define the second to be whatever. But Einstein is here saying, no, time is a thing. <laughs> and you can change that. Well, you can change it. But, but it changes depending on... Yeah, it changes. changes. And it's so weird. Right. And then, so the second thing that he ended up coming up with was that an object that's moving at a relativistic velocity will also have something called a length contraction uh, according to the person who's standing still. Uh, meaning that, let's say if I'm moving in the x direction, if you just think of like an xy plot, if I'm moving in the x direction, along that axis, I will actually contract physically, according to a person who's just standing still. Um, another really weird idea that ends up at, like leading us to all sorts of paradoxes, and I say that in air quotes because they aren't true paradoxes, they're just kind of weird weird ways of thinking about special relativity that present strange problems that do actually have real solutions. Um, and the third, third thing uh, is that mass actually is affected by speed of light as well, or by moving as well. Uh, and any time that an object is moving fast, it actually gains mass, which is, again, something super strange, and which, according to e equals mc squared, uh, which we'll talk about, actually is the proof why an object can't move faster than the speed of light. Uh, well, at least an object with mass can't. So yes. really. So just to recap, um, as objects are moving at relativistic speeds, so objects that move really fast, for someone who is in a different reference frame standing still and those objects are moving very fast, they are getting shorter, their time is moving slower, and they are getting more massive. Okay. Yeah, so... Now, basically, we're just going to run you through a series of examples that will help you kind of hopefully understand where this stuff <laughs> comes from. And I think the most basic one to start with would just be I'm running and Jessica's watching me and I'm running really close to the speed of light. You're a fast now, runner. Yeah. Now, one important you know, thing to note is to me, I'm, I have to be moving at a constant velocity. This is rule number one because like, as we mentioned last episode about inertial reference frames, right? If I'm not in an inertial reference frame, then and if I'm accelerating or decelerating, then I can start to see different, you know, effects of relativity, you know, a little bit of general relativity, perhaps, acceleration. Might <laughs> <laughs> be confusing, let's sneak peek, yeah. <laughs> okay, but I'm moving at a constant velocity very fast. 
in my reference frame, right? I'm looking down at myself. I see the whole world moving, you know, behind me. Like I'm running towards something and everything is moving in the opposite direction toward me. And to myself, time is moving normally. I feel normal, right? I'm not, I'm not heavier. I'm, I'm aging the same as I always age. It's as if you're you sitting know? still and the road is moving past you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just doing my thing. I'm fine. But right? me watching her would see that her physical like length would be compressed. Um, and I so become skinny. She's very, wait. very skinny now. Um, <laughs> it's a new diet plan. Yeah. Run fast. <laughs> I mean, that would have thought that would work. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's true. Um, and then if I were to measure the time for her, it would be moving slower than the time for me watching. And then also she would be more massive. So she would be like very heavy if we were to put her on a scale. So not a new diet yeah. plan. So actually... <laughs> the exact diet you know? It's a beauty. It's an aesthetic thing. Yeah, everything's on the outside, it. people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Yasmin running would see Jessica getting contracted, and would see Jessica actually aging faster because uh, no, 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 aging, aging slower. slower because yeah. the clock so, runs slower. Oh yeah, that's right. That is correct. Yeah, aging so. slower, and would see her getting more massive. So it's all like. You're relative. It's all relative. <laughs> yeah. So but I'm I looking at Yasmin and all these effects are happening. And Yasmin's looking at me and all these effects are happening. But both of us see ourselves as normal. Yeah. And I think a really important part of relativity that I never think is emphasized enough is that this, these effects aren't just a trick of perspective. I will actually be aging slower. And... Jessica will look at me and see a young woman, you know, <laughs> when I should be 80 years old. Like, she could measure it and watch me for 80 years and see me not aging and look at herself in a mirror and see herself aging. And I would do the same to her. But it's, it's really, really important when you're learning relativity for the first time to understand that it's not some trick. That it's actually true that to, to Jessica, I will not be aging as quickly. You know, and it's not some trick. Right. And that, you know, I, I guess, yeah, that idea that to Jessica, I will be young and to me, Jessica will be young. And you could set up a whole kind of thought experiment, which Einstein did and say, what if Jessica and I are twins and we start at the same place and we're the same age. And then I run for 80 years and Jessica watches me. And then I run back to her for 80 years. She's still watching me. And when I get back, am I going to be young or old are we going to be the same age because i'll say that she's young she'll say that i'm young well then what's actually true like what's the fact so know? to me as i was watching yasmin run for 80 years i became 80 years old and yasmin only aged till she was 20 or something yeah like i aged a day whatever and yasmin yeah. sees the same thing so we both think we should be old and the other should be young and so this presents a bit of a paradox because what's true how old are we both when she stops running and we look at each other what has happened yeah and you might get angry because we're telling you what well, both of our reference frames are true and both of like everything we see everything i see is true and everything jessica sees is true and you're like well no that's not right what if we come like when you come back and you look at each other who's right who's actually old you know and you would think that that's something that can't be reconciled but it can yeah. <laughs> because the a very important parameter that we set at the very beginning is constant velocity and in order for us to ever meet up again, 
we would have to turn around. And just by turning around, that would mean we would have to decelerate and accelerate in a different and move in a different direction, essentially. And the act of turning around, it has like all of its own relativistic mo laws of motion. And that act of turning around would make all of the math work out so that when we came back together, we would be the same age. Yeah, and the point is that as Yasmin runs, she did not stay in an inertial reference frame the whole time. Um, and I've also seen this, uh, there was another version of this, so of this same paradox that was, we'll say she never had to turn around, say that Yasmin was running for 80 years on like a circular track and then reached me again. But again, she would still not be an inertial reference frame because for an inertial reference frame, you need to be moving with a constant velocity, which is the same speed in the same direction. So if she was on a circular or on a circular track, um, then she wouldn't be moving in the same direction that whole time. And again, she'd be leaving the inertial reference frame, and then that would like again change the math so that mm -hmm. what would actually appear to happen is yeah. So if Jessica is stationary and I'm moving, right, and then I move and I come back, my act of turning around me, you know that act would mean that when we came back, Jessica would have aged and I, I would have, you know, stayed young because then by having that act of turning around now in this new system, we can claim with truth that Jessica was stationary. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that's kind of how the paradox is resolved. And you can frame it in a lot of different ways. And one especially difficult way to frame it that doesn't have an answer, I think, or has a very highly complex answer um is well what if i'm running like jessica said essentially where i never have to turn around for example on a circular track that doesn't work because as she explained i'm changing direction all the time but if you imagine living in a universe what that has a shape where for example like a toroidal universe i would run in one direction one direction forever and i could end up back where i started right and those kind of like weird shapes in the universe can all be explained with general relativity. So you would think like outsmarting the system, special mm -hmm. relativity is wrong. If we live in a universe like this and I run in an inertial frame, constant speed, constant direction forever and come back to where I am, then boom, like twin paradox still exists, but general relativity will take care of problems like that. Yeah, and general relativity is so much weirder. Yeah, yeah. and this whole toroidal universe thing, Super complicated. It's okay. By the way, toroidal universe just means it's like donut shape, basically. Yeah. So it's yeah. like it's like we all live on the surface area of a donut, and I'm gonna run, you know, like around the loop of the donut so that mm -hmm. I come back to where I started. Yeah, and you'd still be going without ever changing you, direction. You'd still think it's like a straight line in your frame. Like yeah, you like I never would have changed direction, yeah, and the whole like universe would have moved for me to arrive back at where I was. Yeah. You know? Complicated topology. Yeah. yeah. So you might be asking yourself, like, why should we believe that time is moving slower? That's just really confusing. Um, and just to supplement your twin paradox idea uh, to kind of show, like, just a quick thought experiment for why time moving slower is uh, something that we call a light box. Basically, what a light box is when we talk about it is just uh, a box that has a photon in it. And when that photon bounces from the top to the bottom, just keeps on bouncing between. And every time that it hits the top of the box, uh, just add on one second, right? So it's like, it's a clock basically based on when this photon hits the top of the box. And 
the idea behind this is that you have two light boxes, one that you keep stationary and one that you start moving at a speed very close to the speed of light. And because the speed of light is constant, that's the major key to this. You'll actually have a better picture for why the moving clock has slower time. So if you start moving a clock, right, normally in traditional mechanics, like Newtonian mechanics, you would think that the act of moving that clock would also increase the light speed in that direction as well. Like if you toss a ball up uh, while you're walking, the ball will still move at the same speed that you're walking with it. So it'll just come straight back down. It won't just kind of lag behind. Uh, and that's the same idea. Um, so because the speed of light is constant in all frames, though, that light does not get the added kick from, from moving with the box. Uh, so it ends up having a longer distance to go if you think about it, because it now has to go, it now has to go both up and down, and it also has to move in the direction that the box is moving. So going on diagonal, basically. Right, yeah. and because the diagonal, just Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, uh, just means that the diagonal is the longest length. It now has a longer distance to travel. It can't move faster, so it's going to take longer time. Uh, in the in the frame that's standing still, for that photon to bounce or up and down and hit the top of the box again. Uh, so you see the clock on that box is taking time slower. Um, so that's a that's a thought experiment that proves that time dilation through special relativity is a thing that happens. So time actually does slow down if you're moving very fast. Right. And I just want to keep in mind that all these things that we have been talking about so far have only stemmed from one concept, that the speed of light is constant in all reference frames. This is the one idea that just exploded into all of these things. Um, and I think we can jump from the light box into another one of um, the most important conclusions of special relativity, which is just the break of the idea of simultaneous events. And this is a really important thing that um, basically... In special relativity, events that you would think happen simultaneously, depending on what reference frame you're looking from, are not simultaneous. One of these events could have happened first, and in another reference frame, that event would have happened later. So it's really confusing. Um, does anybody want to go deeper into how um, simultaneity works in special relativity? Long story short, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we can talk about the train example really quick. The train example is always a fun one. Um, so with that, the uh, I guess the best way to explain this is, again, another thought experiment. Um, so imagine you have a train that's that's moving, of course, and let's say Doug is the observer on the platform. Uh, and then Yasmin and Jessica are in the train. So Jessica is, let's say, in the back of the train, and Yasmin is in the front. And then Doug's watching from the side, so he sees, let's say, Jessica on the left, Yasmin on the right, train's moving to the right, and according to Doug. Um, so that's all, that's all good and fun. Uh, and let's say you put just um, a light, like, directly in the middle between Jessica and Yasmin. So, like a light bulb. Yeah, like a light bulb. Um, and it's off. So Jessica and Yasmin, they don't see themselves as moving. They see the platform moving as speeding by, right. So for them, the train is not moving, and because the light is coming right from the middle of the train, um, light should hit them at the same time. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so if you turn on the light, uh, then in Jessica and Yasmin's 
in the room um, because the light is moving with them uh, and they're not there. You don't think that they're moving. They're not in a moving frame. Um, it's going to take equal amount of times for that light to hit them. So we think that we, we both saw the light at the exact same time. Yep. And let's right. just, you know, make it an even easier situation, I guess, in that let's agree that when I see the light and when Jessica sees the light, we're going to agree to, like, shoot off a firework. B- very big event. You know, you can't miss it. Right. right? <laughs> and Jessica and I were like, okay, we're, we're going to explode our fireworks at the same time, like, as soon as, and, you know, let's... If, if you're worried about the amount of time it takes to light the fireworks. Imagine whatever, there's like, no reaction time. Yeah, yeah no reaction time. we see it, the firework goes, goes off. off. Yeah. Right. Like, let's eliminate human error. You know, this is a thought experiment. We can do whatever we want. This philosophy is what So then you yeah, so we're just going to see the light, explode the firework. And so it should go at the same exact time. For us, the, there's two fireworks that explode simultaneously. And that's something that happens at one moment in time. Yeah. And but we, the problem we're going to run into is that for Doug, the light's going to hit us at different times. So as Doug's watching, the train's speeding by, and as the train moves to the right, then the light that's moving to the right towards Yasmin, who's at the front of the train, um, is or Yasmin is moving away from the light as it comes to her. And I, at the back of the train, am moving towards the light as it's coming to me. And so the light would reach me first, and I would explode my firework, and it would go off. And then it would reach Yasmin, and she would explode her firework. So as Doug's watching, two fireworks go off at separate times, one at the back and then one at the front of the train. But for Yasmin and I, two fireworks went off at the same time. So what can be seen as simultaneous in one frame is not in another and I think the key to know here is that neither of us are wrong. Like for us, the event is simultaneous. And for Doug, the event is not simultaneous. And it's not that Doug didn't see it well enough or because of this weird trick, it, we happen to see it as simultaneous. Like it's true that in our frame it was simultaneous and it's true that in Doug's frame it was not. Right. And, and the big thing here, um, again, this, this is where it starts to get confusing, of course. Uh, because like it hasn't been confusing the entire time, <laughs> but um, so in classical mechanics, Doug, they would say that Doug would see the fireworks go off at the same time also. And the reason for that is in classical mechanics, again, uh, the light in Doug's frame would have that extra kick of velocity in the direction of the train. So it's going to have added velocity in Yasmin's direction because that's the way the train is moving. And then subtracted velocity in Jessica's direction Math all works out, uh, and amount of distance according to how fast the light is moving, it'll get there at the same time. Um, but because light only moves at one speed, doesn't matter what reference frame it's in, it can't get that extra kick uh, in in any direction like that. So it's still going at that same speed of light, and that's why you get relativity. But I want to stress again that this is only apparent at high speeds. So it would have to be something so much faster than throwing a ball for us to notice that it was or wasn't simultaneous. Yeah, so if you're tempted to grab your friends and, <laughs> and go to the tracks and try this at Get home. the tracks and get your ping pong ball machine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not, not too sure that that'll work out for you. So we've talked about a lot uh, on thought experiments that show how time dilation and special relativity is a thing. It's most definitely a thing, people, it happens. And it's weird. 
But it doesn't stop here. We've mentioned that also another consequence of the speed of light being constant all the time is that the length of objects moving at relativistic speeds will contract if you are in an inertial reference frame. And a very famous example of this, again, another thought experiment. Einstein was known for doing a lot of thought experiments as evidences to his theories. But a really famous one is called the pole in the barn um, paradox. And it, I think, showcases the length contraction consequences of special relativity very nicely. And it's also pretty just, just a cool example. Um, does anybody want to talk about it at all? Yeah, so the pole in the barn paradox, it gets pretty wacky. Uh, before I start explaining it, um, I'm just going to mention the train thing really quick. Uh, so, as we said, the clock in the front of the train is moving slower. Uh, it's taking time slower, so we're just going to use a phrase that I'm going to use to help me explain that leading clocks lag. So, if an entire frame is moving, uh, the front of that frame in the direction that it's moving appears to be lagging behind a clock in the back of the frame. Um, time's moving slower. Right. Well, no, the time's move at the same rate, but the the clock at the front of that frame yeah. Yeah. is it's, behind. It's the idea of a lack of simultaneity. Yeah. Yeah. So if Jessica and I right. so send I'm, fireworks at stopwatches. Yeah, so just just keep that, that phrase, leading clock slack, because I'm going to be saying it. Um, anyway, so the pull in the bar paradox. Uh, let's say you have a bar, right? And doors on both sides of the bar, on the front and the, and the back. And then you have a really long pole. Let's say it's the same length as the bar. Um, and you want to fire that pole through the barn, one end through the other. But you also, while the pole is in the barn, because in the barn's reference frame, let's say you're also in the barn's reference frame because you fired the pole. So the pole is the one that's moving. Let's say because now the pole is going to appear smaller, shorter than the barn, you are going to close the back door of the barn, or you're going to close both doors of the barn as soon as the pole is fully entered into the barn. It's going to continue traveling across the barn, and then you're going to open up the doors again um, so that you'll have momentarily trapped the pole in the barn, and then you open up the doors so it can fly out the other end without it crashing. Uh, and you would say, okay, but in the pole's reference frame, it's not moving. The barn is the one that's moving. The barn is what's going to be length contracted. Now the barn is shorter than the pole. How on earth would the pole say that it was ever trapped in the barn, right? Yeah. It, it's a doozy. It's a doozy, exactly. <laughs> and but again, leading clocks lag, and that's the root of the answer. So again, bear with me on this one because without being able to draw it out, it does get a little bit confusing. Uh, and we'll include we'll include a link that shows a little bit about how it works. But probably for all of these examples. Yeah. Um, so the poll will argue that the barn doors did not actually close and open at the same time, although they did in your reference frame. Right, the pole will say that one opened in time for it to make it out. Right, it was never trapped inside. You just did an awful job of closing the doors at the same time, and and that's how you really solve problems with length contraction is understanding that clocks do not necessarily like, just the lack of simultaneity makes it so that this all works out. Um, and again, this is really hard to picture without being able to draw it out physically. Um, but just in short, it'll say that you never trapped it in because like 
You closed the door. You opened up the door in time for it to get out, while one of the other doors was still closed. Yeah. So it's able to escape, and there's there's the answer to that. So yeah, you, you get all sorts of weird paradox. Well, again, paradoxes and air quotes with special relativity, just because um, you're trying to picture how time is working in different reference frames, uh, along with length contractions, and it just it gets wacky. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's honestly okay if you don't understand why the so-called paradoxes are actually not paradoxes, why everything works out in the end. It's okay not to understand that. As long as you understand and that they're true and that, you know, it leaves us with certain conclusions that are true, such as simultaneity does not exist because you can find a reference frame where things aren't simultaneous. So everything that you might think happens at the same time, someone else might think happens at different times. And it's okay if you can't reconcile why it's true, as long as you can believe it's true. And you don't even have to believe it's true because it's been proven by experiments. <laughs> so you should just know it's true and learn it's true. And again, even if you don't fully believe that what we're saying is, is true, um, as Yasmin said, there are experiments, uh, one of which being... Um, the case of particles called muons. Uh, so the idea behind muons is that they have a certain lifetime, as as most particles do. And they have a very small lifetime. Yeah, it's very short. Uh, and we know that because we see them in, like, you experimentally look at them in a lab, and that muon is in the same reference frame as you, right, in a lab. Uh, so no special relativity involved. Right, let's yeah, see, the muons are standing still. Yeah, there are people on Earth who have just like trapped a muon and looked at it die, and it lives for a very short time. Right. And they can record that it, and then they know what is the lifetime of a muon in the muon's reference frame. Right. Yeah. right. Now we also know uh, that there's muons that come from cosmic rays. Cosmic yeah. rays, right? And those travel through our atmosphere down to us uh, at very high speeds, at relativistic velocities. But we also know how fast they're moving. And we know how far they've moved. And we did the math and found that they're living long enough to get to Earth longer than their actual normal lab decay time, which is strange. Yeah, so someone on Earth, in the Earth reference frame, can time how long it takes for a muon from space to reach Earth, traveling through our atmosphere, and that time is longer than the actual lifespan of the muon. And the one of the only ways, if the only the only way <laughs> you can explain that is with special relativity, saying that in the muon's reference frame, it's only living for I don't know one millisecond. Well, the time that it's lived, that it would live in. Yeah, the time that the time that it lives, its lifespan. You know, it only lives that long, and the reason why it travels so much distance is because that length is contracted. Right. So. Or to muon, us, to us, the muon's clock is running slow. Yeah. So the muon can describe it as it had a shorter distance to travel, and because of that, it made it there any amount of time. And we can describe it as the muon's clock is running slower, and so it did not die as quickly as we would have assumed it would. Right. So either way, it can resolve itself. Yeah. Yep. And if that's not enough proof for you, uh, even you know another experiment that also verified you know the effects of special relativity. Uh, includes like atomic clocks and atomic clocks are just very 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 accurate ways of measuring time 
And there was an experiment that they did, I don't know what year, I think the 70s, the 60s, sometime <laughs> decades ago, right? This is not even like really new, like brand new tech. I mean, it's still kind of new, like, you know, 50 years ago is not that long ago. But they, you know, these scientists had two, two atomic clocks that were perfectly synchronized in the lab. So, you know, all in the same reference frame, perfectly synchronized. And they kept one on Earth and they put one in a jet that was moving, you know, a fraction, really, a pretty small fraction of the speed of light, but enough for, you know, just barely to have some effects of relativity become apparent. And atomic clocks are so, 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 so accurate that even though we couldn't really approach speeds near the speed of light, we were able to get a high enough speed with an accurate enough device that we could see the effects of relativity. And they sent this clock around the world and, you know, when it came back and it met up with its twin clock, the times were different. The two clocks, which are, you know, apparently the most accurate way of measuring time, had measured different times. And yeah. the clock in motion measured less time. And again, it was only a very slight difference. It was, you know, it took decimal and decimal and decimal places before you noticed that difference. But because they had been so accurate, then that shows that there surely was a relativistic effect. And that is why it, like, now is showing a different time than its, like, sister clock. Yeah, so again, we just we just threw a lot at you. Um, we're about to throw more next week with general <laughs> relativity. Like, it just gets weirder. We go down the rabbit hole with, with relativity. Um, but yeah, so you might, again, have questions perhaps about like accelerating frames um, and how that would work. Uh, and again, Einstein actually pitched an idea for that that led to general relativity. Um, and two years after, actually, after he submitted his paper or released his paper for special relativity, Einstein had what he called the happiest thought of his life. And again, this is after he had released his papers, a Nobel Prize winning paper, um, paper on special relativity, a paper saying that an object, uh, its mass is equivalent to its energy, um, and two years after all that, he still came up with something that he thought was even greater. And that was what led him to uh, think through general relativity, um, which we will talk about next week. Yep. So um, come back next week. Um, we're all going to still be here, and we're going to talk about Einstein's general theory of relativity. I hope you guys come back. And please let us know if you have any questions or if you want any more explanations about anything. Or on Facebook, or on Instagram. You can comment on SoundCloud. We'll find it, we'll see it, and we'll answer it. We also have a bunch of links down um, with visual explanations of how these paradoxes work and how they get sorted out. So if you're confused, if you have to listen again, don't feel ashamed. Like I had to look at this thing a billion times before understanding it, so it's fine. I mean, it took me a whole semester to learn it. <laughs> I've learned this in two classes, and I'm currently reading another book on it because I'm not quite done. <laughs> so next week, we're going to jump even deeper into this thing, and we're going to also jump back a little bit into Einstein's life. He, um, he had sort of a competition with a mathematician on who was going to publish general relativity first because they were kind of parallel in their discoveries, but that's for next episode. So my name is Doug. I'm Brian. I'm Jessica. And I'm Yasmin. See you next week.